You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. On this episode of HEDEX, we're joined by Chris Eiglund, the Chief Revenue Officer of an educational tech startup called GoOne as a new insight into um, some of the issues facing disruption in the higher education. Carl, how are you doing this week? I'm good, thanks, Martin. I'm wrapped that you got uh, to speak to Chris. I remember Chris from his uh, his involvement with the uh, the UN, I think it might have been some years ago. He's, a, he's an absolute go-getter in terms of his thinking and, and forward planning in terms of strategy. I'm dying to find out what he has to say about uh, higher education and what he's up to. Well, he has some fascinating things to say, and I think it's a bit of a coming of age, really. His, his, as you'll hear in the episodes, um, he's just come of age of a certain age just recently. And I think HEDEX would like to think that we've probably matured as a podcast in the time that we've been on, underway in the back end of 2020 and now into 2021. Um, we've had a, a, a number of guests, starting with with our original guest who was talking about a purpose-driven university. I think some of those issues of being purpose-driven come through in the interview with Chris today. Mm. We're going to start to see the rubber hit the road, though, with our guests, which is great. You know, we, we've asked every guest what they, uh, what they expect, what their experience has been, what their expectations are moving forward, what their strategy is, how they're aligning culture to that. And to be honest, I've seen a lot of confident responses to those questions. So this year, we're going to start seeing some evidence of uh, how effectively you know, a lot of these organisations have applied themselves. Yeah, you used the word experience there. I mean, uh, the, the experience that we've had with um, 16 previous episodes of HEDEX is that we've, we've had some very experienced vice-chancellors leading a number of our universities all around the country who, of course, don't get to those positions without having a lot of experience. And as with our podcast last week with, with Sarah, the, the student from Monash, we've also had some brilliant young minds on our, our podcast series. And I can't help thinking that putting those two things together, that these are times that are calling for a combination of perhaps experience and wisdom, but also call for the unbounded by legacy views towards innovation that come with the freshness of youth and and energy. Finding that combination, I think, is really timely in the, the situation that the sector faces right now. Well, I've been fascinated just from our consulting practice so far. Some of the questions that we've asked uh, universities and the way they've answered them, uh, you know, there's a, there's a long way to go for a lot of them to actually recognise the key motivating elements, the key drivers for their audience, um, and then what this disruption's actually done to those motivators and what they need to do to um, to arrest some of the, the bloodletting that's gone on around previous conditioning for the industry. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I'm, I've been really surprised to hear the, the nature of the questions that our clients have been asking us and mm. the, the issues that they realise they're facing and the open-mindedness with which they're um, approaching that. I, th- I think if you'd have come to this sort of subject two or three years ago, there'd have been much, le- much less open-mindedness and much more self-confidence that people that experienced positions knew exactly what the, the future was throwing up. I think now people genuinely do have open minds they don't know what the the future will look like and they're prepared to be on a voyage to discover what that future can be and make it happen it's very exciting and, and it's a um it's 
It's a, not a departure for me because I've always been the black sheep. You know, we, the Brand Institute has always been an organization that evolves iconic organizations. So, and the way we've done that is through disruptive strategy. So more often than not, I am swimming uh, upstream and, and, and sort of working against the grain more often than not for boards and executive teams and leaders to sort of look at things outside the box, things I hadn't considered, things that are going to have to shake things up a little bit, uh, you know, short-term pain for long-term gain, uh, key differentiation that might mean significant transformation in terms of talent or product offering. And, you know, there's been, we've had a lot of success in that across many different sectors. But in terms of higher education, it's not something that we have gone after, you know, traditionally, certainly in the last three or four years, it's been a bit more interesting. But right now, every higher education or every university is forced to forced to think about this. So the fact that we've been doing it for a long time, I think, is some comfort to them. Well, it's, um, it's an exciting time for you to be facing, to be uh, approaching the sector. And, and great time for me, having worked in it for so long, to now be as a partner with you in HEDEX, seeing the 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 the, the sector just open up to new ways of thinking. And that, those new ways of thinking, I don't think, could be better illustrated than by Chris. Maybe we should listen to, to the interview with him. For sure. So I'm joined today on the Higher Education Experience by Chris Eigeland, who's the Chief Revenue Officer and co-founder of the company Geo1. Chris, welcome to HEDEX. Great to be here, Martin. It's uh, yeah, good to chat again. It certainly is. And, and we've known each other for a little while now. And we, uh, and we first got to know each other after your spell as an honours college student and student member of council at Griffith University. And it was soon after your time there where, as an alumnus, you featured in one of, of their marketing campaigns for a story of your great humanitarian work that you undertook in in Haiti and Southeast Asia after your founding of an organization called The School Bag. I wonder if you can take us back from when we to when we first met and, and share with us what your key memories were of life as an undergraduate student and then a council member at an Australian university and how they inspired you to work on that particular project. Yeah, no problem at all. It, it, it does feel like a few years ago now, but I'll, I'll do my best to, to remember. But I think if I had to sort of encapsulate my undergraduate experience and and what led to the school bag and then onto other topics. It was a real exposure to a diversity of experience, knowledge, thinking, people. That's what I think characterized my experience as undergraduate. So I started studying a Bachelor of Design, focusing on theme park design of all things, and then decided, you know, six months, 12 months into that, no, actually, I think I'd rather go and become a lawyer, which, you know, much to the chagrin of my friends and family who were getting free theme park tickets, I then went and studied law and international relations also, also at Griffith. But I think because of the crossing of disciplines, one around narrative, storytelling, creativity, one with you know, law, critical thinking, analysis, and exposure to you know, many different types of, of disciplines and students through the Honours College and other areas, you know, meant that I ultimately got really interested in the education sector, which I wasn't at all prior to starting my university experience. And and it exposed me to you know, the sheer scale of education inequality and the scope and potential available by moving the needle even a little bit. And then it also exposed me to new thinking around business models, market dynamics, all topics which I just wasn't even aware of or interested in prior to going to university itself. But I you know, met a lot of really interesting people, lecturers, fellow students who helped me Think about problems from multiple angles. And you didn't stop meeting interesting people and doing interesting things soon after that. And that's um, 
you were then appointed as one of Australia's youth representatives to the United Nations. And that, that included a, a, a need and a, an opportunity for you to reach out and gain the views of young people from all over Australia and then, ad, then advocate for them in a spell at the United Nations in New York City. So what were the dominant issues that you found to be in young people's minds that underpinned that part of your life? Being the United Nations Youth Representative was a pretty special experience. Uh, I was very lucky and privileged to be able to travel around Australia. I ended up consulting with about 10,000, 15,000 young Australians. And if you start the macro, like it, it definitely reinforced my belief that there is a huge opportunity in front of us to unlock the potential of young people where there's one narrative around the kind of youth bulge and how that will be a challenge for labor markets and education systems. And then there's another narrative around, you know, a demographic dividend and how do you really turn the disproportionate number of young people in Australia and around the world into a significant force for economic progress. And, and that was really reflected in, in my experiences talking to these young Australians where I think the overwhelming message was still one of confidence. We're very lucky to be in Australia. We have a, a strong growing economy, a, a system that encourages young people um, to, to pursue their careers. But there was a real undercurrent of kind of fear and uncertainty, largely around economic participation and sort of disruption and equality in the labor market. And specifically, that was around things like underemployment and unemployment. Um, and so a lot of them were thinking through, well, you know, they definitely have a desire to contribute. And I think I asked a question of, on a scale, what do you feel is your kind of duty to, to contribute to the change rather than be a, be a passive participant in it? And about 80% of them said that they didn't believe that there should be a change or that they had a, you know, an obligation to, but it was actually part of their duty of being a young Australian to contribute to the change and so then they're taking um, their future into their own hands with more and more you know initiatives organizations being more entrepreneurial because you know, there is a fear that the current institutions coupled with the direction of the labor market aren't appropriately sort of representing them in, in the decision making process additionally the other two topics that came out very strong were sort of climate change and the environment and making strong policy and consumer decisions and then sort of gender equality and race participation. So you know, that was the three headline themes that I spent most of the time uh, discussing and ultimately learning a lot from these, these young people. So I can now see in retrospect how that would have inspired you for this most recent um, step in your, your thinking and your career and your aspirations, because just three, three or so years later, You've become the founder with two old schoolmates of a, of a tech startup, an ed tech startup that through the largest curated e-learning library in the world, seeks to provide the best learning opportunities to improve lives through education. So tell us about your journey in forming Geo1 and what it seeks to do and, ha and how. So I mean, the journey of forming sort of Go on was influenced by my journey in the school bag, living in Haiti, witnessing the you know, disparity in education equality, access to relevant materials, and even uh, experiences working for the UN where maybe as a, as a sort of naive teenager, I, I thought that an organization like the UN would have the world's best systems and world's best approaches to topics like education equality um, and sort of equalizing access to those materials. So that was one definitely experience that formed some of the thinking. And the other was more of a commercial market trend topic and seeing what had happened in you know, the film industry, the music industry, the travel industry, um, you know, when the 
you know, marginal cost of delivery of certain pieces of content goes down to zero, then certain business models emerge. You have an aggregator like an iTunes and then a aggregator on top of that, like a Spotify for a subscription model. And so that sort of inspired our approach to the problem and, and inspired our business model. And so you know, historically, you know, lots of training, learning, education, particularly in the professional space where we focus on uh, on more is a walled garden. You know, you have a institution or a trainer who focuses on these topics and, you know, they don't really talk to other institution B or institution Y and there's a competitive dynamic between them, which makes it very difficult for someone to A, understand what the best training is for them, what the best learning opportunities for them, because it's hard to compare apples to apples. And so we focus on two things. One is the economic model that's similar to Spotify, where we don't create content ourselves. We find amazing people and companies from all over the world who specialize in really amazing pieces of training. And we license that together and then surface that back out to businesses on an all-you-can-consume basis. And the second piece is a technology stack, which does two things. One, it surfaces that wherever you are. So you shouldn't need to log into your old learning management system with you know, three passwords and navigate for 17 clicks. It should be in Microsoft Teams, should be in Slack, should be on your phone, should be wherever you are. And then also, because we operate across all these different providers and get visibility into the sort of lifelong learning journey, uh, we want to become the best person that recommends a piece of learning for you at any one time. Uh, and that's a big task, but it's one which we're sort of driving towards at warp speed. Warp speed, indeed. And um, you're obviously very aware of that. What, what, what do you believe the levels of public awareness are of Go One and its current position and place in the market? Do you have intelligence on that? I would say we're very much still a challenger company. Um, we're challenging both online large learning providers and offline learning companies. So we have you know, tens of thousands of pieces of online learning content, but the market is so fragmented and there's so many different specializations that that's a very long journey ahead to, to sort of grow to a level of, of scale. In some sectors like financial services, we have a very strong market presence. In others, less so, and particularly in in the new markets, we're now operating in the US, UK, Southeast Asia, the Middle East. Um, it's just the beginning of the scaling journey there. So I think overall, we're still very much a, a, a challenge of brand and a challenge of company that's sort of trying to carve out the, the, the space here. So, so I wonder if you can share with us your plans for further development from here and what, if any, big obstacles you see to continued growth at warp speed, as you described it? And we're very lucky in that the kind of value proposition seems to resonate that the way in which we're approaching solving the problem seems to be a, a unique way, which, which others aren't, aren't exploring. And so we've been able to grow very quickly in the Asia-Pacific region. We're now growing quite quickly in the US. And so for us, I think the challenges to further scale are finding the right education partners to help service more of the market need because we get requests every day from our, our customer base and from our learners that, oh, do you have this or that or this? And ultimately the learning market is very fragmented and there's not tens of providers of learning content, there's thousands and thousands. And so the challenge for us is how do we move faster at building those relationships with those you know, experts in certain subject matter areas to be able to service the growing demand from our from our customers. So, so here you are. We 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 met when I was a an executive in a university. You were a, you were one of its leading students and on on its council. What 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 do you think that the work that you're now pursuing and, and others are pursuing amongst your competitors and 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 in other 
complementary fields of, of, of ed tech and new entrants to this market. What does all this mean to the future of our universities, do you think? A great question. Um, one which I wish I, I knew exactly the answer to and had a crystal ball for the next five years. But maybe if I can just speak to a couple of the trends and then where I think they might my land and so again no surprise to to your listeners and the higher education market is changing there's you know decreasing expenditure on award-based learning you know your fifty thousand dollar university degrees there's the challenges around the reliance on face-to-face international students which we've seen over the last 12 months and you know, that likely will drive a i think a more competitive dynamic within australia's borders around you know, competition for the australian um, student base that, 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 which in and of itself will probably make it harder for universities to work together, I would have thought, than easier, which may be the wrong approach to solving the problem. Then I think there's a changing labour market, and I, this, to me specifically, is most interesting where it comes to the badging and signalling. So uh, some, some degrees are quite straightforward. You need a law degree to then do your practising certificate to then be admitted to the bar, but equally something less, um, less straightforward because I did my MBA or my undergraduate degree in business, I must understand a profit and loss statement and uh, venture capital term sheets and all those sorts of things. And I think that badging space is changing significantly. Um, I don't think organizations and businesses want to wait you know, three years for someone to finish a degree and then also not have the strength of validation on some specific skill sets within that. And so, you know, last year, I think it was Google launched their career certificate. Um, and we're seeing some of the big technology players like Amazon start to move more into the space around how do they, because of their own labor requirements and their own skill set requirements, better validate and signal um, you know, their future employees. And then I think the third topic is around the change in expectations around education and accessibility. So that's the mechanisms, the delivery type online, how, how do we sort of move to adapt where people are? And so then what do I think that means for Australian universities? Um, at least where I, I see a really big opportunity for Australian universities in the topic of lifelong learning and lifelong learning partnerships, because as an alumni from Griffith, I chat to someone from Griffith every year, but um, would my, my alma mater understand what topics I'm interested in what I am and learning external to the university and could that influence my consumption habits in the university? Uh, I don't think they would. And so then who is best positioned to do this? I think someone like a Google or, or a big technology company could do it or a small technology company like go one um, or someone like a seek, someone that understands the labor market and employment really, really well. But I still come back to that. I think universities are uniquely positioned still to this day with their current cohorts of students, their alumni, their research base, and you know, their influence over the trajectory of the market to, to tackle this topic of like lifelong learning, um, taking advantage of some of these trends that we're seeing. So, so it sounds like you're describing a situation where you believe there's an opportunity for universities generally and Australian universities perhaps particularly to step in and serve these disruptions that are happening in the marketplace. But while it's not happening, companies like yours will do it. So, so if, if that's what you're describing, what, what do you think it is that's stopping universities moving more into this disrupting and transforming marketplace? It's a great question. Having sort of served on university council, I've had somewhat limited exposure. So 
I don't want to comment too much on the internal machinations of Australian universities, but if I if I had to guess, I think it'd probably be a couple of things. I would suggest these based on that we've had the inverse experience where these topics don't apply to us as a, a sort of technology company that's starting from zero that doesn't have an existing customer base, et cetera. And so there's probably a business model question around uh, the government funding model tied to certain qualifications and uh, sort of uh, admissions, all those things. And then there's a market dynamics question around the competitive structure between universities. So ultimately, I believe that the ultimate players that start to adjust and win in this market will be ones that promote collaboration and partnership, not competition. I think that's a domain topic because you know, the best person at teaching you about a profit and loss statement will not be the best person at teaching you about you know, how to design a theme park or something like that. There's such diversity in topic areas that a competitive moat, you know, competitive walled scenario, I think will be less productive to solving this problem in the long term than more. There's a cultural topic, I think as well, any large institution or company that carries with it tens of years of um, legacy thinking. So that obviously requires particular, uh, a particular openness and willingness to be challenged around that, which can be quite personal. Uh, and, you know, we've had to do that on a yearly basis for this business, challenge ourselves and like, are we actually solving the problem? Be quite critical of, of that in terms of helping us pivot slightly to, to get the right product market fit. And then I think the final one, which is maybe the key one, I think is just the economics is if you subscribe to at least my view, which many people probably don't, that um, you know, there's a decreasing emphasis on you know, large $50,000 ticket price award certificates if you're a institution that makes a lot of money from that are you really going to sacrifice short-term revenue and you know maybe put some of these students on a 200 dollars a year lifelong learning plan or something like that no idea what the actual product looks like but just conceptualize two very different economic models one's a you know high high ticket price locked in and one's a lower ticket price but over a longer period of time, stronger ongoing engagement, et cetera. Are you really going to sacrifice those high ticket prices for the smaller ticket prices in the short term? Probably not, even though if you look at some of the other businesses that have adopted similar models, Disney Plus is a really great example of a company that's done this pivot incredibly well. The lowering the ticket prices, lowering the barriers to entry ultimately leads back to like ultimate expansion and revenue expansion and leads back to the high ticket prices. So you know, it, it, it's, it's a combination of those drivers of like business model, competitive market dynamics, culture and, and economics, I think. So, so perhaps in closing then, Chris, it's been a fascinating traversing of the history of, the, of your, your personal journey and the growth of your company and the impacts in the wider market and fields and futures of education and training. But coming back to the leadership of our current universities, what, what would your key messages be to our current leaders as they grapple, as they're having to, with the combined effects of managing current operations coming out of a pandemic and preparing, as we've described today, for a very different strategic landscape for learning in the years ahead? What, what would your key messages to them be? Maybe if I think about it in terms of tactical and strategic, I think tactically we're seeing a lot of major jumps forward in technology available to make learning more accessible. And I specifically reference some of the, um, the some of the platforms like Microsoft Teams, Salesforce, Science, do some interesting things in this area with Slack, 
Zoom's starting to do some interesting things in the education space as well with, you know, in Zoom meeting educational experiences. And so I think tactically, I'd be encouraging universities to lean heavily into those education platforms and technology initiatives that aren't disruptive to their model, but will make the experience uh, more aligned with probably where the market's going. And then strategically, I think you can't go back, right? The sort of we're, we're coming out after a black swan event, one which I probably won't see again in my lifetime. The markets are changing, people's expectations are changing, technology is moving faster. And so there's no going back. And so because of that, I would be advising them heavily to think about additional revenue streams for the organization and to kind of rethink the strengths of a university. And um, yeah, a topic which we think about a lot at Go One is that topic of lifelong learning. Like how do you have a profile or a partner throughout your entire professional journey and to understand you? And we, we love it. We're having a great time going on that journey, trying to solve that problem. But ultimately, I think universities are really well positioned to tackle that topic and to to be their trusted learning partner of their current cohort and alumni long after they leave the campus physically. And that's I think, a significant opportunity because the amount of money that's spent on training and learning, I think post entering the workforce is only going to continue to increase and grow. That pie is going to get bigger um, where other pies might start getting smaller. So it is a challenging time for, for a lot of people but I think there's significant opportunity if it played right. Well, you've given us some great insights into the changes as you're seeing them and the changes that have happened since since you were an undergraduate student and, and we first met. Just remind us how old you are, Chris. Uh, I just turned 30 a few weeks ago. So uh, it's uh, unfortunately, I'm now in my 30s. So now it's gone from there. I can no longer say I'm in my, in my 20s, but yeah, just turned 30. Well, there you go. It's um, wisdom and experience and youth all wrapped up in one, eh? Well, thanks very much for joining us today on HeadX. It's been really enlightening to hear your views and share your experience. Thanks for having me, Martin. Great chat. So that was Chris Argland, Carl. What do you make of his thoughts about the future of the sector and how it might be disrupting? I think uh, what Chris said really can't be underestimated. He's, he's such a quiet, con- quietly spoken, considered uh, person. Um, however, he has he's at the right age. He's got ext- extremely relevant experience uh, in terms of universities. He spoke about legacy challenges. Uh, any disruption that I've seen, particularly from things like neobanks disrupting the big four, or traditional banking, it's do speak to and almost rely on legacy systems and legacy thinking. Uh, now, Chris was very polite in the way that he spoke about um, the way universities think about things. And he said, I don't really, you know, it's not for me to say. Um, however, I think he's right that if we don't have a you know, transformative and, and, and significantly different um, way of approaching these challenges, they're not, a lot of universities are going to find themselves coming up a little bit short. I think that's what he's saying, that it's, you've got to get back to the actual key to why people want education. And that is a very big question. And that's all about people want an education. A lot of people want an education, not for the sake of learning, but for the sake of, you know, for vocational opportunity. So they're, they're wanting to be educated so they are, um, can progress in their life financially and also from a you know, interesting, in, in, embarking on an interesting career. And that's massive. You know, I think my feeling is a lot of universities have just got complacent and thought about a, a degree is the, what do we call it, the click were or the, the next gear from school. And it's just a 
fait accompli when really we need to get back to why do people want education and if someone can come in and offer that and solve that that problem like Chris like others that are going to pop up this year uh, the universities need to be prepared for that absolutely I mean he, he's talking about you mentioned legacy his he, he really shone a light on how sometimes the legacy of having experience and cultures of doing things in in ways that have served in the past can is actually a hindrance and not an asset to be able to move forward and I think being able to show that he he was a greenfield player in a in a competition that's that's um, got a whole new set of rules associated with it just shows how much of advantage there might be. I mean, the other thing that I that I took from that is that you talk talk there about how important education is and how people are seeing different things in it. Um, his picture of how education transforms lives and how democratizing the access to it is a purpose that can create a great force for change. I thought, thought was an incredibly powerful message from the interview with Chris. And for that to become the dominant way of thinking in the way that universities are serving a, a changing and evolving need for people looking to education, I think is a very important thing to keep hold of. How about his comments about, uh, you know, taking a short-term hit uh, financially, are the universities likely to do that? I, of course, don't know. You know, it's not like a publicly listed company that finds that very, very difficult to do because they're, you know, reliant and responsible to shareholders. Uh, it seems like it's it's normally what we have to do with clients that are looking to disrupt the um, value proposition or the, the sector model. What are your thoughts about that? Is that something that universities are likely to look at and say, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll take a, a two, three, four-year hit based on the concept of lifetime learning over a 15-year period? Well, I, I think these are such important times to be thinking about the answer to that question differently than any other time, aren't they? Because everyone's taking a hit over this next couple of years. And if, if you've got to take a hit anyway, taking it in a way that allows you to disrupt your business model through the downtime to be better positioned on, on the world that's going to emerge the other side of it, this, if there are ever a time to be able to sacrifice short-term revenue to position yourselves better for a longer-term future. 2021 has to be that time. Mm. But I don't know if we're seeing enough examples of the traditional players or many examples of the traditional players doing that to the extent that that Chris perhaps paints a picture of there being a need for. He also spoke about uh, partnerships, and he thinks that's a really important strategy for universities. I'm not sure that he's not just saying that. You know, I, I feel with the investment behind from the tech companies particularly, you know, he's got investment from Salesforce, Microsoft, etc., and they're not even one of the bigger players. You know, there's a there's an enormous wealth of um, capital around to support a new entity. You know, he mentioned Amazon and Google having learning platforms coming or you know, semi-established. Um, the partnership is, is not going to be a tech company coming to a university to say, we'd like to partner with you. It, it's At this stage, it's more likely to be universities going cap in hand to technology to say, how can you help us ensure that we're relevant and providing value to students um, uh, based on what they're looking to do with their lives? Well, well, I think the the idea of of partnerships has featured quite a lot in our our, our podcast today. But we've 
largely been having conversations with the sector about partnerships mm. in accordance with the traditional business model. How can employers of graduates and end users of research work with universities in the same way that they always have mm. um, to help help find a path through the current crisis and the current um, hit on the on the sector? But this is a completely different form of partnership. This is a partnership to help transform. And I think there's lots of, of evidence that in other sectors that has been the route to the creation of new business models. And you'd think that with all of the legacy and culture that has come out of experience in doing things one way of universities up, up till now, that those sorts of partnerships will be crucial to help universities disrupt. I think he's really on the money with that. I'll be interested to see how he goes. I mean, he's gonna he's got a lot of runs on the board. He's got a really good team, yeah, good concepts, great investors. Um, I think he's onto something. I, I think he's not going to be the only one, though, and I think it's going to be a year of enormous change. But his message there of there's no going back was so, so convincing, wasn't it? The, mm. the, 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 the picture of $50,000 $50, degrees being dead and that mm. universities' knowledge and research are changing so quickly that, that the traditional model of universities can't keep up. He really is hitting it on the head with a, a comment that there's no going back, I'm sure. Mm. Seems like we've had two episodes now with a bit of a siren at the, uh, uh, at the, at the end of it, a little bit of a warning uh, signal for people to take, um, take notice of. I'd be keen to use his thoughts and some of his comments in future episodes on this program just to get, uh, you know, executive or, or vice chancellor um, perspective. You know, the, 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 the debate that I'd love to see happen, maybe this is something, and I know that you and I have talked about HEDEX being able to facilitate that sort of conversation. It would, mm. There's two conversations going on, aren't there? The, the, the establishment of the universities itself through its leadership is having one conversation about where we've come from and what we're facing and what the way out of it is. And then almost outside of that, there's this fresh new disruptive conversation going on with other players. And actually, I think the, the the way forward is to get those two conversations to be happening in one room on one platform with one agenda. Um, and there's so much value to the sector as a whole in someone facilitating that sort of conversation. I can't help thinking there's a role for headaches there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Martin. I think that's something that uh, is well worth exploring. And that's probably all we've got time for this week, Carl. Um, thanks for joining us on another episode of Headaches. Pleasure. <laughs>